Well, why don't you take your Bibles and turn to Titus 1. Titus chapter 1. And sooner or later, every Christian comes either into contact with or comes under the influence of what is known as legalism. Most of us know what legalism is, I think. Chuck Swindoll gives an extreme example of this thing we call legalism. He tells a story of a young man who was a youth worker many years ago, and being a forward-looking and creative young man, he decided to show the youth group a missionary film. Now, we're, we're talking a safe, simple, black-and-white, religious-oriented movie. And the film projector hadn't been off for an hour before he received a call from a group of leaders in the church. They called him in. They asked him about what he had done. And they asked, Did you show the young people a film? And in all honesty, he replied, well, well, yeah, I did. We don't like that, they replied. And without trying to be argumentative, the youth worker reasoned, well, I remember that at the last missionary conference, our church showed slides. And one of the church officers put up his hand, signaling him to stop talking. And then in these words, he emphatically explained the conflict. If the picture is still, it's fine. But if it moves, sin. So you can show slides, but the second those slides start moving and and make a movie, you're getting into sin. Well, there's another extreme example where a missionary is visiting a church to report what had been going on in the field. And he drove up to this small country church. He'd actually never been there before. He gets out of his car, and the pastor of that small church comes to greet him. They talk for a little bit. He's getting some stuff out of his car, and then the pastor notices in his trunk... He said, of golf clubs. And the pastor asked the missionary why he had golf clubs. And the missionary replied by stating that while he was on the mission field for the past three years, he never had the chance to golf, which he really loved as an activity, recreation. So he was hoping to get some time to do that since he was home. But immediately the pastor got this disgusted look on his face. And he said, we don't believe in playing golf. Or anything else like that around here. We think those worldly amusements are a waste of time. And you should know better. The pastor then told the missionary to pack up his things and leave. Right then and there. Not even letting him continue and do his missionary presentation. This is just a couple of pretty radical examples of legalism. But there are plenty of churches out there who fall prey to such legalistic thinking. Christianity for them basically devolves into a man-made list of do's and don'ts. The Christian faith is replaced with the Christian law, where you must keep this law to be saved. If you're all wondering what legalism is, in the broadest sense, legalism is relying on one's own performance to earn God's favor. It's when people try and please God and and earn salvation by keeping some law. It can be any law, you know, the law of Moses or some man-made set of rules. And contrary to this, biblical Christianity teaches that salvation only comes on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ apart from works. Galatians 2.16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Instead of relying on your own performance to please God, which will never be good enough, you have to rely on Christ's performance on the cross to 
to forgive you. The Jews of Christ's day are a perfect example of this legalism. God gave them the law, the Jews, for a couple of reasons. One was to provide them a standard of godliness. However, God knew and they should have known that this standard could not be perfectly kept. Therefore, this should have convicted them of their sinfulness before God and pointed them to faith. And that was another reason God gave the Jews the law, really to point them to faith. But most of the Jews got this wrong. Instead, they looked to the law as a means of pleasing God and earning his favor. And this is legalism. And then on top of this, they started adding hundreds of their own laws to the law. They went beyond what God said, and they added all these man-made rules, such that if you violated their rules, you were sinning. And this also is legalism. Some Christians today, really no different. Some people today think Christianity, it's all about obeying a list of rules. Do this, don't do that, and you'll get to heaven. And be a good person. And that's really nothing other than legalism repackaged. Pretty soon Christianity itself gets reduced to yet another rules-based system that is all about earning God's favor by measuring up to some list. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, in the past few weeks, we've been studying this portrait of the elder from Titus chapter 1. And in Titus 1, God gives us this list or this standard of godliness that applies not just to elders, but to all people. But here's the thing. Sadly, many can look at this list of character qualities in Titus and and think to themselves, Christianity is just a list. It's just a religion of rules. Do this, don't do this. Be like this, don't be like this. It's pretty much what it's about. And so many people get Christianity wrong like this. And then here we are spending two, three, four weeks studying this list. And it just confirms in their mind, this must be what Christianity is all about. Just come to church. I have to be like this Titus 1 person and that'll make God happy with me. That's how I please God. God will accept you if you conform your character to this list. But that's not the case. And today, guess what? Guess what we're going to do today? We're going to continue to study this list in Titus chapter 1. We're going to get into the positive characteristics of the elder. But I want to pause beforehand and take this opportunity to remind you not to confuse the heart of Christianity with this list. Christianity, it's not about conforming your character to some standard of godliness in an effort to win God's favor. That's not what it's about. And don't take this list in Titus 1 out of the context of the greater Christian message. And what is that message? You're so broken before God that trying to be a better person isn't going to help. You fall so far short of God's standard that no amount of your own good works or obedient or effort or being like this Titus 1 person, no amount of that is going to make any difference in your standing before God. God doesn't care. You can't bridge the gap between you and God by being a better person. And this is the ultimate failure of legalism. It doesn't get you there. 
Being a good person isn't good enough. Being like this Titus 1 person isn't good enough. Well, what is good enough? Only Jesus is good enough. Because we were so lost and helpless and condemned for our sin, God intervened. He sent Christ to become a man, to live a perfect life, yet to die on the cross for your salvation, for your forgiveness. And that's what Christ did. He purchased your forgiveness on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins because you weren't and aren't and can't be good enough. And he rose again for your justification. He did for you what you could not do alone. And now God requires that you have a true faith in this Jesus to receive the forgiveness of your sins. And that's the gospel. It's salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. And it's the only way. God doesn't accept good people. There are no good people in heaven. There are only sinners saved by grace through Christ. Now, understand this. Your salvation by faith in Christ doesn't make this standard of godliness in Titus 1 worthless. Don't get me wrong. To the contrary, only those who truly know God can meaningfully please God by living according to this standard. That's the point here. Your desire is to honor God by being like Christ. And so, not in an effort to earn your way to heaven or to earn God's favor, but simply out of love for God, for what he's done for you, you seek to conform your character to this list. That's its place. That's where it fits in. But don't put the cart before the horse. Only those who first approach God in faith can ever actually please him by living according to this list. So this morning, as we continue to make our way through Titus 1, I want to make sure that you're not getting too distracted from the big picture. Because we're going into these details, we're focusing on this list. But don't, get, don't lose sight of the fact that Christianity is not a list. It's not about doing this and that to win God's favor. But it's about a relationship with Christ. A faith-based relationship with Christ. And so make certain that you are about that relationship. Well, with that reminder in hand, we can get into Titus 1 now. So turn there if you haven't already. In verses 6 through 9, Paul gives these three sets of qualifications for elders. Family qualifications, character qualifications, and doctrine qualifications. And we covered family qualifications a couple weeks ago. Last week, we started into verses 7 and 8, which give the character qualifications. And there's 11 in total. So look at verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. In verse 7, Paul lists five negative qualities to avoid. And we covered that last week. And then in verse 8, he lists six positive qualities to possess. And that's what we're going to cover this morning. Contrary to what an elder must not look like, verse 8 
depicts the positive side of the portrait. Indeed, God wants all of his people to be characterized by these positive attributes listed in verse 8. But for elders, they form a requirement for their position. They must conform to this, to, to simply be elders. And with this in mind, from Titus 1.8, let's explore now these six positive qualities to possess. Six positive qualities to possess. And the first one, first on our list, is being hospitable, verse 8. just simply starts off with being hospitable. Now today, when we think of hospitality, we think of you know having your friends over for dinner, giving them a meal. Just pretty much today, hospitality has become reduced to just being a good dinner host. Now that's, that is absolutely a valid expression of hospitality, but biblically, hospitality is much broader than that. It goes beyond just having someone over for dinner. word for hospitality is philozenos in the Greek. It comes from phileo, which means to love, and xenos, which means stranger. Literally, it just means it refers to one who has a love for strangers or the foreigner. Hospitality is showing love and warmth to those who aren't necessarily your friends and family. It's where you're kind and you're welcoming to everybody. So yes, this can look like inviting your friends over to dinner and having giving them a meal, but it's more than that. Biblical hospitality, it's showing care for the needs of others, whatever they may be and whoever they may be. One of my old professors, he defined hospitality as making people feel at home wherever they are. And that was stuck with me. I like that. Making people feel at home wherever they are. I mean, even if you're out to lunch with someone, you can practice hospitality. Buy their meal. Give them a ride. Do whatever you need to do to take care of their needs. Provide for their needs. Most of you know, before I came here, I was a college pastor. And while most college students, they believe that being hospitable doesn't apply to them because they don't have a house. If you don't have a house, you can't have people over, so you can't be hospitable. Of course, that's wrong. And I actually had one student who realized that that was wrong based on what hospitality really is in the Bible. And so he wanted to do his part to practice hospitality. So what did he do? He cleaned out his car. You see, his car was an absolute mess, and he was too embarrassed to ever give anybody a ride. But we had a lot of people who needed rides. So he cleaned it out, he made it presentable, so that he could start giving people rides. And that is a perfectly legitimate way or expression of practicing hospitality. So you get the picture? It's, it's, you know, what can you do? It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in or how rich you are. God wants all of his people to practice hospitality and look out for the needs of one another wherever they are in life. Now keep in mind, there are several ways to nullify or cancel out your hospitality. What do I mean by that? Well, if you get the heart attitude behind hospitality wrong, it really does no good. For example, let's say someone at the church, they had a flood in their house, they kind of leveled the first floor, and it's getting repaired, but they need a place to sleep to stay for a couple days while it's getting fixed up and cleaned out. Or you feel guilty, so you let them stay at your place, but secretly you complain the whole time. 
And you just non-stop complaining about this. This is an inconvenience to you. This is a chore for you. You're not happy with this. Now, technically, you're providing them lodging and, and hospitality, right? But do you think this is what God really had in mind when he, wants, when he told you to be hospitable? I don't think so. Instead, 1 Peter 4.9, which is a command given to all believers, not just elders, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Without complaint. Well, why do you think Peter felt the need to throw that little phrase in there, without complaint? It's, it's the right heart attitude behind hospitality. And we're so prone to complain. And so like I said, don't, don't nullify, don't cancel out hospitality by having the wrong heart behind it, by complaining the whole time. Doing it against your will. Another way you can cancel out your hospitality is by doing it with wrong motives, with selfish motives. And maybe you think to yourself that you'll get something in return or you'll somehow benefit yourself if you practice hospitality. If I buy him lunch this week, he'll definitely buy me lunch next week. Listen to what Jesus had to say about this type of attitude. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Biblical hospitality expects nothing in return. It's where you give of your time and your money and your effort in exchange for nothing. That's the point. And overall, you can see why this is such a virtue to God. And such hospitality, when it comes from the right heart motives, it's a concrete expression of biblical love. That's what it's about. That, that's the true motive. That's the heart of hospitality. It's an expression of the selfless service that characterized Christ himself. And so it's no wonder that God wants his people to be characterized by the same loving attitude. And it's all the more so more important for leaders. Elders and leaders cannot neglect the importance of hospitality. And shepherding is not a long-distance relationship. You cannot shepherd from afar. You have to be with your sheep in their midst, next to them. And likewise, as examples for the flock, leaders must invite people into their homes and model godliness for them in the home and show them what faith looks like behind closed doors. Leaders overall, they must care for the needs of others. They must be characterized by this hospitality. So this marks the first positive quality to possess being hospitable being hospitable. Second on our list, verse 8, second positive quality is loving what is good. Verse 8, first be hospitable. Second now, to be loving what is good. And believers and elders especially must be those who love what is good. It's where they delight in all that is good and profitable and, and righteous. That's a good way to think about this characteristic. What do you delight in? Think about that question. What do you delight in? What do you take pleasure in or enjoyment in? What brings you joy? 
that which is good or that which is evil. That's what this characteristic is talking about. This is one of those characteristics that people just read right over. It doesn't get a lot of attention. When you're reading the Bible, you'll just pass right over this. When was the last time you stopped and examined your life when it comes to loving what is good? Maybe never. And remember, we're not talking about being a loving person. We're talking about loving that which is good. What's the object of your affection in life? And this is, it's so extremely relevant today. How? Because we live in a day and age where there's so much temptation to love that which is not good. Think about this. I know for some of you, I might be touching on your sacred cow, so to speak, but that's okay. Think about the media you ingest. Think of the TV shows and the movies you watch, the music you listen to, everything you look at online. Now, concerning all that content, would you say that it falls into the category of loving what is good or loving what is evil? How would you describe the the content of the shows you watch or the music you listen to? Filled with good or evil, righteousness or wickedness? Does the stuff you watch more resemble the deeds of the flesh, you know, like immorality, impurity, sensuality, so on, or does it more resemble the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Which list does the stuff you fill yourself most resemble. Starting to get to point. And let me help you think through this even further. Take, for example, like drunkenness. Is it wrong to watch a movie or a TV show that depicts people drinking or getting drunk? What about adultery? What about sex outside of marriage? What about greed? How should you think through these questions? Important questions. I mean, even the new Christian movie Courageous got a PG-13 rating for violence and drug content. So what should you do? Is it a sin to watch these shows or anything with any form of wickedness in it? Well, what I'm not going to do is resort to legalism and give you guys a list of shows you can watch and shows you can't watch. That's not my goal. That's not my job. But these are questions you need to be asking yourself before God. Here's the thing, though. Here's what makes this tricky. Even the Bible contains episodes of drunkenness, adultery, sex outside of marriage, and greed. So is the answer, maybe you shouldn't just read your Bible then? Well, that's not the answer. So what's the difference? There is a difference here. What's the difference? The difference you need to consider is the light in which sin is portrayed. Did you catch that? The light in which sin is portrayed. Whatever you're watching or listening to, is sin being portrayed in the best possible light or in the worst possible light? Is sin being displayed as something good, something to be enjoyed? Or is sin being displayed as, some, as for what it really is, sinful, damaging, hurtful, so on? Do you see the difference? There's a difference between the two. Take a show like Sex and the City, for example. And thankfully, no, I have not seen the show. But I know about it. And from what I know, this show is all about promoting sex outside of marriage as being a good, 
profitable, important thing for women today. And so you have all, millions of women across America are just watching it and taking it in. You may be thinking to yourself, well, it's one thing to watch, but just because you watch doesn't mean you're participating in it. I mean, watching it, it's not the same thing as, as doing it. And that's true. Well, what does this characteristic in Titus 1.8 say? Does it say, do what is good? No. It says, love what is good. Remember, we're talking about here what, what you love, what you delight in, what you derive joy and pleasure in. And that most certainly extends to your entertainment choices. And media today in the form of shows and music has such an extraordinary power to influence you. Movies and shows can so pull on your heartstrings that pretty soon you find yourself rooting for the murderer or the thief or the adulterer or whoever. And we, we can all easily just fall right into that. In fact, sometimes you'll even pay money to do that. And at times, depending on the circumstances, it can be a fairly inconsistent thing for a Christian to do when you think about it. Like I said, I'm not going to give you a list, but turn to Ephesians 5. Let the word speak to us a little on this one. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I'll give you one more thought on this. Ephesians chapter 5. When you get there, look at verse 3. Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. But immorality, or any impurity, or greed, must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. It says these vices... It must not even be named among you. And your name as an an ambassador of Christ must not even be attached to wickedness. So what do you think? Do you think that relates to what you watch? Look at verse 7. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So you tell me, are you participating in the unfruitful deeds of darkness as you watch them on TV? I'm not going to answer the question for you. You have to answer the question before God. If it's not okay to even speak of the evil things which are done in secret, is it okay to watch them on TV or listen to them on the radio, especially, like we said, when evil is being promoted as good? But know this, there's there's something better out there, something truly pleasing to the Lord, and it's called loving what is good. As Christians and as leaders, you need to be checking your actions, checking your motives, to determine if you are really loving what is good or if you've been tricked and you are loving that which is not good. And elders especially must be characterized by the former. What's enough with that one? Let's move on to our third positive quality in Titus 1.8, being sensible. Look at verse 8 again, being sensible. First, hospitable. Second, loving what is good. And then third now in verse 8, being sensible 
According to the NASB, or sober-minded in the New King James, or self-controlled in the ESV. This literally means having a sound or healthy mind. Prudent, moderate, rational, be good synonyms. Makes me think of the Vulcans from Star Trek. Anybody? Yeah? Okay. And they're all those rational, level-headed. I mean, they don't make rash or emotional decisions. That They are sensible. That's what I think of. And this word refers to one who's able to control his mind, curb his desires, and produce an orderly life. So you can see why some translate it as self-control. A sensible person is one who has control over his thoughts and actions. It's when you know the right thing to say and the right time to say it, and the right thing to do and the right time to do it. You say, for example, one day you go visit your friend in the hospital. He decided to jaywalk one day, and he failed to check for traffic, and he got hit by a car. Both of his legs were broken. To make matters worse, he didn't have health insurance. So now he's out of work, in the hospital, he's out of money, and he's suffering in pain. So you show up to visit him. And the first thing you say is, Hey, pal, well, you really should check both ways before you cross the street. That's pretty much the opposite of being sensible. That's the point here. That's the opposite of being sensible. It's when you say the wrong thing the wrong time. Instead, a sensible person has control over his or her thoughts and actions such that they exercise good judgment, discretion, and common sense. And you can see why this is so important for leadership. And leaders can do a lot of damage or get themselves into a lot of trouble by not being sensible or level-headed. But just think, how many leaders have fallen because they said the wrong thing at the wrong time or did the wrong thing at the wrong time? And countless. President George W. Bush, he got so much criticism, if you remember, for landing on the aircraft carrier at the beginning of the Iraq War in front of the banner that read, Mission Accomplished. People really got on his case for that because they thought it was the wrong thing at the wrong time. And even he later uh, regretted that move and said it wasn't sensible. And that's, that's how it is. Leaders in the church must be sensible. They must display control over their thoughts and actions, not losing their cool and always maintaining their pose and leadership, being sensible. The fourth on our list is being just. Being just. Hospitable, loving was good, sensible, and fourth thing now, just. Elders need to be upright, righteous, just. And when you think about elders or leaders in the church, how vital is it that they're just? Elders are entrusted by Christ in a very real sense to rule over the church. And God wants righteous rulers. They need to be law-abiding, fair, honest. I mean, the decisions that elders make, they can influence so many people. And they can affect many lives. So they need to do that which is right and just. The church has no place for men who will use the church to benefit themselves. And we have a tie-in here with one of the requirements from last week. Namely, being fond of sordid gain or, or having a love for money. Whenever a man rises in leadership who has a real thirst for money, it's only a matter of time before he twists justice to gain his way. Proverbs 17.23 A wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert 
the ways of justice. A good way to think about this attribute is simply one who is fair in his or her dealings with others. Does that sound like you? Fair in his or her dealings with others. Are you fair or are you a cheat? Will you sin to advance yourself, cheat to get ahead? Or do you seek to do that which is right, even if it costs you a little? You know, for example, tax season rolls around. What are you going to do? You're going to cheat a little and lie just a little bit to save some money, or are you going to do that which is right, even if it costs you a little bit more? That's what we're talking about here. In the ancient world, there were a lot of cheats. For example, if you wanted to buy something, you could trade for it, or you could pay in some sort of precious metal, like gold or silver. But payment wasn't by amount, it was by weight back then. You paid by weight. Let's say you walked in my store, you wanted to buy a little statue or something like that, and I say, it'll be a pound of gold. So you would fork over a pound of gold. But how would they measure one pound? They didn't have advanced scales like we do. They had the original scale. You guys know what you know what an original scale is. You walk into any courtroom today, you see Lady Liberty, or Lady Justice holding up the scale. You know what I'm talking about. It's scale consisted of two suspended pans that were connected to each other, and depending on the weight, the pans would rise or fall in proportion to one another, and you could weigh things in that way. And so to measure a pound of gold, they would take a known quantity of weight, they would take a known pound, an object that weighed a pound, put it on one side of the pan, and then they would start adding gold to the other side, little by little, until both sides equaled out, reached equilibrium. That Hence, you have one pound of gold. There's just one problem with this. You know that original one pound weight that you put on in the first place? Well, how do you know that's really a pound? See, people would cheat and they would use a control weight of maybe 1.1 pound or 1.2 pounds. And in the end, they would be getting more gold than they should using a heavier weight. And using false weights like this was very common back in the ancient world. And with all that background, now you can understand Proverbs 11.1, which says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. That's what that means. Or Proverbs 20.23, Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and and a false scale is not good. It's just an example of, of being just. And God wants you to be upright in your dealings with others. God is a God of justice and equity, And he wants his people to be the same. And whether it's in the marketplace or the workplace or at home or at church, God wants you to be just. And for leaders, it's a requirement. It's really nothing worse can happen to people people than to be stuck under unjust leaders. It's one of the worst things that could happen to you. I mean, remember Samuel's sons? Samuel was a judge over Israel, one of the most righteous, but his sons, when he when they became judges, they were some of the most unrighteous. Just listen to 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 and 3. It came about when Samuel was told that he was appointed, oh, it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons as judges over Israel, verse 3. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. The leaders in the church can't be like this. 
God demands that his leaders be just and righteous all the time in all of their dealings so that they may likewise lead the people into justice and righteousness, being just. Well, fifth on our list, our fifth positive quality from Titus 1.8, being devout, being devout. Like verse 8, elders are to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, and now devout. And today the word devout has an extreme connotation. And we think of the devout Buddhist monk, someone who's extreme in their in their faith or commitment. The Buddhist monk who takes a vow of poverty and they devote their entire lives to the practice of meditation or enlightenment. Or we think of the devout Catholic nun who likewise commits herself to a lifetime of isolation and prayer and service. So today to be devout is to be extreme in your service or commitment. And Christians today can be devout, but we think they're weird. Most people today, when you see a devout Christian, you think they're weird. They're just, they're just too radical, a little bit too committed, they make you feel a little uncomfortable. But do you know what Jesus would call such devout believers? Normal. He would call them normal. I'm sorry, but a radical commitment to Christ is simply what normal Christianity should look like. And we think this is so extreme today because we have redefined normal to be lukewarm. That's the new normal. But it should not be this way. This word for devout simply refers to anyone who lives rightly before God. And that's why most just translate it as holy. God's people must be holy. The devout person separates himself unto God to do his will and to please him. It's an all-encompassing commitment. Christ wants radical disciples. And the point here in Titus 1 is that leaders of all people must model this commitment and this devotion to Christ. If anyone is to display a passionate pursuit of Christ, it should be the leaders. Just think about how how backward it would be if, if the leaders were lukewarm, but all the people were passionately devoted to Christ. No, but the the principle holds true that people will will rarely rise above their leadership. People will rarely rise above their leadership. And what I mean by that is leaders set the pace for everyone else. That's why they're leaders. It's like if you've ever gone running with a group of people, usually the strongest runner gets out in front. At that point, everyone else is just kind of following his or her lead. They're following their pace. And leaders, likewise, need to set the pace, lead the way in devotion to Christ. So, for example, if you have an elder who only reads his Bible maybe five minutes a day every now and then, that's going to show and it's going to rub off on everyone else. But likewise, or to the contrary, if you have an elder who is passionately consumed with the Word, you just can't get enough, it's also going to show and it's also going to rub off on people. God wants devout leaders because he wants devout people. People who are sold out in their commitment to him. That's what you need to be. You need to ask yourself, are you sold out, devout in your commitment to Christ? It's normal discipleship. Well, last on our list, let's finish it off. Verse 8, the last positive quality is being self-controlled. Like a verse 8 again. Hospitable. Loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, 
And six, and finally, being self-controlled, as the NASB has it. And this needs a little explanation. You guys know what this means. You know what it means to be self-controlled. The hard part is just doing it. Self-control, self-discipline, self-restraint. They can be hard to pull off because our self is our greatest enemy. Don't listen to the world. The world today, it's all about the self. You know, Live for yourself. Focus on yourself. Do whatever your self wants. It's just all about the self. But what they don't realize is that their true selves, which are being controlled and dominated by sin, are running them headlong into destruction. Instead, your sinful flesh and self, it's your greatest enemy. And you need to control it. You need to keep yourself on a short leash. Have you ever been walking your dog, and your dog sees another dog or, or cat or person or pretty much anything, and just goes nuts and goes crazy barking, just trying to get to it and chase it? And thank God for the leash, right? You're just holding on to the leash with dear life. Just imagine this. Imagine walking your dog one day throughout the entire neighborhood with no leash. Not even a collar. Nothing. I mean, how, how insane would that be? It would be about 30 seconds before your dog was gone. Just off chasing something he shouldn't be chasing. Well, excuse the analogy, but yourself is like the dog. And you need to leash yourself. Otherwise, it probably take you about 30 seconds as well before you're off chasing sin, chasing that which you should not. And here's the thing. Self-control is the leash. Self-control is the leash. And, and you need to impose it upon yourself. You need to be controlling your own self. This attribute of self-control, it's, it's so important. I mean, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. But the reason it's so important is that if you get this right, you're going to get other things right. If you get self-control right, you're going to get other things right. Look at verse 7, for example, of Titus 1. What we talked about last week. If you're self-controlled, you're not going to be quick-tempered or addicted to wine or pugnacious. You're not going to be controlled by those things. You're not going to be controlled by money if you are self-controlled. And how important is that? It all derives from a spirit-powered self-control. And this is very much related to self-discipline. They're really the same thing. That's why many translations have here just disciplined in verse 8. Elders must discipline and be in control of their lives. They must run their lives. Their lives must not run them. Is that true of you? Do you run your life, or does your life at times feel like it's running you? See, any person who lacks such control and discipline over his or her life is easy prey for sin. That's the problem. Listen to Proverbs 25:28. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. I love that proverb. It pictures an ancient city without walls. And in the ancient world, your walls were your life. I mean, if you didn't have walls in your city, you'd be prey for wild animals, treacherous robbers, even opposing armies. And the point is that in the same way, the one who is not controlled and disciplined has no guard. 
and you're an easy prey for sin. And believers must not be this way. Leaders must not be this way. They need to be instead self-controlled. So here we have from verse 8 our six positive qualities to possess. Hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. Now there's one last point I want to get across to you. See, I once had a college student who got this right. Got, got Titus 1.8 right. Got this down like we talked about at the beginning. He understood that Titus 1 is not a standard for salvation. You can try all you want to look like this list, but that, that's not going to make God any happier with you. You can't earn his favor by trying to be like this. He got that. He understood that. He also understood on the flip side that Titus 1, although it's not a standard of salvation, it is a standard of godliness, and God wants his people to be godly. After salvation, you should seek to conform your character to this list. It's good for you, because sin only wreaks havoc in your life, and it's good for God, because this is just what it looks like to bring God glory. So this college student, he understood that. He got it right. But he went wrong in one place. Where was that? Where did he go wrong? Well, he failed to understand his responsibility to strive after godliness. He failed to understand his responsibility to strive after godliness. He had some big sin issues in his life. He was really struggling with some sin. But he wasn't doing anything about it. Why not? Because he was waiting for God to zap him. Seriously, that's what he told me. Oftentimes, we met a lot. He would tell me, you know, if God didn't just change his heart, if God didn't fix him, he would never be holy. He just had to wait for God to change him. Now, in one sense, that's absolutely true. If God does not intervene and change people, they can never be holy and they can never please him. But for believers, if you're a Christian, here's the problem with that. God already has changed you. God already has zapped you. It's called salvation. This guy essentially wanted to wait around for God to snap his fingers and just make him perfectly holy without any effort. And look, that's going to happen when you die. But for the time being, what has God done? For those who know Christ, God has lavished you with grace. He's kind of overflown you with grace. He's given you his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. And now he tells you to get to work and to strive for godliness through that spirit. So what? What more do you need? Is that not sufficient for you? Do you need something more? Before you're so quick to pray for more grace... First, ask yourself, what are you doing with the grace God has already given you? That's the question you need to be asking. It's like saying you won't eat until God feeds you, but you're ignoring the overflowing plate of food right in front of you. And here's the point I'm making. If you know Christ this morning, and God has already given you everything you need, and he now wants you to strive, to really strive after godliness, to work, it's not going to save you. It doesn't make you acceptable before God. But since he has saved you, he has equipped you to now get to work and to really strive for godliness. 
He supplied you the power you need to grow. But it's now in your hands to work. So with this in mind, when you look at these six positive qualities that we studied this morning, here's a question you need to ask yourself. How are you striving? How are you pushing yourself and working on yourself to grow in godliness? What are you doing? Of these six qualities we studied this morning, where are you lacking? Where is the gaping hole in your character? So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Are you just going to sit around and wait for God to zap you? Or are you going to get to work and strive after godliness? Don't drag your feet. Get in the race. So here's what I urge you to do. Pursue this standard of godliness rightly. For instance, ask your spouse in humility where you need to grow. Children, ask your parents. Parents, ask your children. And then take yourself to task. And then with God's help, work on it. Pray. Be in the Word. Memorize relevant scriptures. Get some accountability. Just don't do nothing. God didn't give you Titus 1 so you could do nothing. Instead, Hebrews 12.14. Pursue peace with all men and pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm going to read that again. Pursue peace with all men and pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's what you need to do. God wants us to pursue this because this is what Christ looks like and we want to be like him. So join together and take seriously the charge to be more like Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we pray now that you would indeed help us to be more like Christ. Lord, you've already given us everything we need. We have salvation. We have forgiveness. We have transformation. We have your spirit now living within us, and we have your grace. Lord, we pray that now we would get to work. I pray for everyone in here that they would work mightily according to your power to, to grow. Convict us all, Lord, of our sin. We all have our shortcomings, we all have our faults and our sins to deal with. May we have a tender heart to repent of those sins, Lord, and then may we just get to work and work on them, seek to grow and strive in godliness. You've given us the standard for a reason. You want your elders to be known by it. But, Lord, you want all of us to measure ourselves by it as well. Help us to do that. Convict us of our wrongs and then work in us to make them right. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our Savior Christ who makes all things right. That's why we can stand before you. We thank you that we don't have to work our way to you for that would be impossible. And we remember our Savior who died so that we could receive that forgiveness that legalism can't afford. So because of that, Lord, we love you and and we want to now work for you and honor you with our lives. So bless us in doing that. Bless this church. May we be a holy church given over to you and seeking your glory in all things. In your name we pray. Amen.